You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. There is a place where time stands still, where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. All you've got to do now is pass the Australian culture test. Three simple questions, three correct answers, and you go through that doorway to the greatest... Good morning, this is Annie for Showreel on 3CR and today we're going to go back into the vault. It's a piece that I recorded when I went to the Australian International Documentary Conference earlier in the year. Interestingly enough, the AIDC was uh, just finishing up when the COVID uh, pandemic really closed our doors and uh, just to prove that there is life after COVID. The AIDC has uh, begun uh, its program and uh, ticket sales for its upcoming conference in February next year. This is a piece about a film called The Final Quarter. It's a documentary that's made up of uh, uh, archival footage and it's around the uh, uh, booing and uh, outing of uh, Adam Goods as a uh, in what as an indigenous person fighting for his rights uh, but uh, it's actually about the ugly uh, exposure of uh, Australian deep-seated racism uh, the final quarter ran parallel really to the Australian dream but it t- took a completely different uh, tack and this uh, clip is a uh, discussion between the director producer Ian Darling and the editor Sally Fryer around the whole process of making the film. It's a great pleasure to be here with you all for this session and um, I would like to introduce our wonderful filmmakers that we have. We have Ian Darling here, the director and producer of Final Quarter and his editor Sally Fryer. So we are here to... um, discuss the film um, and look at the editing process. Can you tell us a bit about, maybe just to begin with, a bit about the film, where the idea came from and a bit about your relationship as a team? Okay, well, you can... I'll talk first about our relationship as a team. Um, yep. Ian and I have been working together for 20 years now, actually, um, which has been really fantastic and... Um, as always happens, I mean, editors and directors would know this, you get to a shorthand in an edit suite often where so much doesn't need to be said between you. Yes, it um, does. <laughs> there are many things that don't need to be said. There are many kind of stern looks that will just quieten someone down. Um, and because Ian and I have worked continuously on films together over those 20 years, I think um, it's a very, very close collaboration. There's sort of nothing that we can't say to one another in the cutting room if need be, really. So the film started, um, we're both Aussie Rules fans and we, uh, we, um, we're always thinking about what the next film will be and when we saw that Adam was nearing the 
end of his career after the 2012 grand final, we're thinking, you know, maybe there's a really interesting story, a celebration mm. of this incredible person's life and um, both observing him both on and off the field. And then suddenly 2013 happened and he was made Australian of the Year 2014. And before we knew it, a very different film from what we were just chatting about mm. started to appear before our eyes. And um, through uh, a close friend, we approached him in um, August 2015 when he was still playing and just raised the notion about this film and, yeah. and it, he, he wasn't ready for it and and we totally respected that. And so it wasn't until 2017 where the story just never went away and, you know, I think we just felt so upset when one of the greatest sporting identities but also a great Australian was booed from his place of work mm. and... The, the headlines went away and it was almost swept under the carpet in 2015 and we felt really uncomfortable about that. Mm. And it never left us and we wanted to explore how we could ensure that an examination happened and that and that that, that wasn't going to be the, the history of, yep. of, of of Adam. And anyway, we, we were busy with Good Pitch and making another film and in 2017 we actually just sat down and started watching footage and um, it was then that the concept of how to make it came out and using just archive and I think it was in October that year we um, contacted Adam and he came in and first question was you know are you okay about us making the film and we explained the intent and he said absolutely and I think he was really thrilled with the notion of um, the conversation continuing that he had started but um, then he was so so wounded to continue it and uh, so he you know gave it his full support then. And then, then the really hard work began. Yes, I bet. Did you at any one point um, interview Adam or did you make a decision and stick to it that it was going to be strictly archival? Yeah, no, we, we um, decided that and, and Adam spoke about um, the Australian dream as well and that yep. that was going to be a more interview-based sure. one. And so at that early stage, and we knew the producers of that, we could see that they were going to be two very different films yep. and very different approaches and that was really exciting. But no, we, we just... I think... Even before we knew there was a second film, we thought, no, there'll be a real purity in doing this. And there were a few films that gave us clues. There was a, a brilliant one called June 17, 1994. And if you want to see... It's one of the ESPN 30 by 30 films, and it's an incredible film just made from archival footage, and that gave us so many clues. And that was about the O.J. Simpson chase yep. and what was happening, six major sporting events on that day. And it really spoke so much about the US and their culture and mm. it revealed a lot. So we, we were drawn to that as a technique and we thought if we're going to do it, we've got to be really pure about it. Yeah, for sure. So tell us then about the process of getting all of that archival <laughs> material because it's not just television, it's radio, print, you know, all the footy. I mean, it's, it's monstrous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, overwhelming <laughs> at times. <laughs> We had an initial researcher in 2017 that started just gathering some stuff in that, um, that she'd found on YouTube. We carried on looking on YouTube. Um, we started doing reading of newspapers, and you just go, oh, my God, that's such an incredible archive of newspapers. So we had a, I had a period between films, so I was just sitting, reading newspapers, printing them out, going, you know, this part of articles about this incident is getting bigger and bigger. We had an amazing archive researcher that then came on called Lindy Boylan, who was just brilliant and we you say well what do you want me to you know, what do you want to concentrate on and we said well you know 
2013, 14, 15, but we'd really, if we can, like to have access to anything that the ABC, sort of everything that the ABC has got, SBS, Channel yeah. 7, Channel 9, Channel 10. Um, and it just started coming in slowly. Um, that, that was a crucial thing when you mentioned the dates because one of the things we had to do was work out what the time period was. Yeah. We um, uh, could have gone back to when Adam started in 1997, or but we thought, no, it's really important just for this particular film to show the final three years of his career. And I think yeah. with so many films defining that period... and. We, one of our executive producers, uh, Mark Munro from the US, he'd just done a film with Ron Howard on The Beatles, eight days a week, mm -hmm. and it was the touring years. And again, that gave us lots of clues because that was just the final... the, the four years in which the, the, the Beatles toured together. Mm. And you can tell such a you know an interesting story just by having a contained period of time. Definitely. So, you know, we thought, well, let's find a point that's important. We sort of started when... He, he gave one of the few interviews and then won the grand final and was almost at the peak of his career and and we thought that's a that's a good way in rather we didn't didn't need to know too much more about him before then sure. yeah so we were in the edit for 10 months which is an enormous length of time mm. compared to the time that a lot of editors are given nowadays in edits we didn't do crazy hours we did you know regular sort of nine to six or whatever nine to half past five but i i think that one of the reasons the, in the first few months one of the reasons the film is so good is because you have time but actually having those 10 months it meant that we had time to to watch to absorb to make really careful choices through all of that mm. material but there was a huge amount of material to go yeah. through like we watched every single game okay, that yeah. he was involved well, with yeah. to see what the commentary was and you know wow. that was hours and hours and hours, just to see where, if there was any booing or if there was any commentary. Yeah. And it was interesting, just for that reason alone, that there wasn't a single comment about the booing until about mid-2015. Mm. So when it was happening all through 2014 and the 2014 grand final, not a single comment. Yeah. And that was illuminating in its own right. You know, when you're dealing with archive, you never know where little gem is is going to He's come from on yeah. that note the little i mean the little gem that emerged very early on was the sam newman piece which is used at the beginning and it was almost that just came in and a whole bunch of archive that came in and i think ian and i kind of had the same reaction to that that this is just so outrageous yeah we, I, we kind of went it's got to start the film yes you absolutely know. it's so powerful it's and so confronting. powerful confronting so in the film um for those of you who've seen it you may remember that there were four or five definitions within the film of certain words that we thought it was really important to have up on screen in black and white for people to really think about what they meant. And people tried to dissuade Ian and I over the course of the edit about whether it was good or not to have those words in, but we felt um, it was really important, so we stuck to that. Um, so we've gathered those together, and I think we popped on the end a few of the um, definitions that didn't make it in, um, so we could start talking over those. And then we can talk about how we chose where the definitions were going to pop up in the film. And why, yeah. It is on you as an Australian of the year to unite and placate people, not to divide and be a provocateur. Now, just a minute. Just a minute. Just a minute. Now, just a minute. If you... And, and this man said I'm a racist. Did 
I racially vilified? No, I had a slip of the tongue. But did I, what I say, was it, was it racially, was it racial vilification? Yes, it was. What does this honour mean to the Indigenous community as a whole? And, and where do you stand on, on the issue of Australia Day being called Survival Day, Invasion Day? Good, you can I ask you a bit of a pointy question. Is Australia Day a one of mixed emotions for you, given what it signified for Aboriginal people in Australia? For me, it has been a journey um, up until this point. So there was a lot of um, anger and a lot of sorrow for this day and um, very much the, the feeling that of Invasion Day. If you think you've been racially abused, then apparently you are. I mean, we had this spectacle last year of a little 13-year-old girl at that Swans Collingwood game in Melbourne. She used a word. She had no idea. I have to say, at the time, the word that was used, I had no idea it was a form of abuse. But that's because we are in the privileged position. Of course it's a form of abuse, and Aboriginal people have suffered that form of abuse for many, many years. No, Andrew. The significance of these war dances, they come from another era, and they are significant in the fact that it's between two tribes who do it before they go out and want to kill each other. And I mean, want to kill each other. Now, bring that forward. Is it a great thing to have in this day and age? I don't think so. These are the ones that were going to make it, didn't make it. Yeah. You were booed, weren't you? Why, why was that? Yeah. Is it the tall poppy syndrome, you think? That, that it's quite that's... big in Australia, the tall poppy syndrome, yeah. but um, it has reared its head this year yes. more than any other time, um, to really? be honest. So... Against you, you mean? Yeah, definitely. Oh. We boo our discomfort. You can ask the question, but listen to the answer. I am a white, Anglo-Saxon, male, Protestant, heterosexual. I'm waiting for my day to come. And, and when it does, and, and when it does, I will be first... So, so each of the clips we're in... Um, but some of those definitions weren't, and we, we thought... Some of them were a bit didactic. Listen was an interesting one because we debated that at length and I remember, actually it was Penny Smallercombe who said, is there a single word that you think you know, either defines or is the most important word in the film? And my answer was the word listen and so much comes from it. But we felt using that definition wasn't necessary in that, in that instance. But with all the ones that we used, we tried to use them as a way of highlighting the power of words and how if they're thrown away without actually knowing the definition, it can be either dangerous or it can be a huge overreaction. So, for example, the country gets its, its back up against the, the use of the word invasion, words invasion day. But when you actually look at the exact definition of invasion, there's no other explanation for, mm-hmm. for what happened. Um, and... Same, I mean, I think with, with Eddie Maguire in the morning, he said that he didn't uh, racially vilify Adam and in the evening he still found it difficult to say I did. He said, did I racially vilify? No, I didn't. But was it racial vilification? Yes, it was. And, and you know, yeah. and, and so that, that confusion, yeah. 
you know, we just wanted to answer that. With Alan Jones, you know, the, just by putting up the simple definition of, of ape, we wanted to say, no, Alan, um, how can you, as educated as you, not understand that the mm -hmm. word ape is offensive? Mm -hmm. and, and when you see it, 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 it was even just seeing the definition, it yeah. sort of sent shivers up our spine. But when, when you see the simplicity of it, we thought it actually shows how careful people have to be with words. Sure. And also, in terms of the positioning of those, like, you know, I have to admit, in the first cut when we... The first person to say ape in the documentary is Adam. So the first time... First, in the first cut, the word ape came up immediately after Adam says, I was called an ape, and just felt wrong. You know, we didn't, we didn't want... He'd just been um, racially vilified, and it sort of felt as if placing it there would just somehow increase it. So we, it was... It felt so much better for it to come out, for it to be... Um, prompted by that word coming out of um, sure. Alan Jones's mouth. And the other thing with, we didn't, you know, what the film had tried to do all the way through was to be completely as level as it could be, to look at, you know, the argument from both sides. So we didn't want to, um, we didn't want to accuse Sam Newman of being racist. Mm. <laughs> um, no, somebody in his, somebody in his audience did. You're on showreel with Annie and we're in the middle of uh, a discussion with uh, Ian Darling director and producer and Sally Fryer editor of The Final Quarter. And again you're going to see the first version of when we used a clip from Utopia in the film and I guess we show the second one straight after. Straight after yeah, yeah. so a and, sort of and, rough and cut version and a fine cut version. And, and when you're looking at the first one um, uh, you can roll it Tim thanks but um, we very much realised that the by putting in what we did is, is it wasn't the film that we were making. Um, and so the second one was much truer to our intent. We're about 200 miles from Alice Springs and heading into the red heart of Australia. It's a region known as Utopia, the poorest place in Australia. It's the home of the first Australians. I was waiting for a description of the concentration camp that was here. The historic rottenness, play and stay. We rounded people up into our own concentration camps. No more whispering in our minds. Welfare men found us and took us no and mothers were screaming and crying and hanging onto the truck when they drove us away. We've got a lot of racist chains. policies in our past, but this one was the mother of them all. Early in March, the new Australian of the Year, Adam Goods, wrote passionately about Pilger's film, saying it had moved him to tears. It takes courage to tell the truth, no matter how unpopular those truths may be, but it also takes courage to face up to our past. A brutal history of dispossession, theft and slaughter. And then this is the cut from the film. If there are people out there thinking that today is a great day for Australia, well, it is. It's a, a day we celebrate, you know, over 225 years of um, European settlement, and that's who we are. Right now, that's who we are as a nation. But we also need to um, acknowledge our fantastic history, our Aboriginal history of over 40,000 years, and, yeah. and just yeah. know that some Aboriginal people out there today are feeling a little bit angry, are feeling a little bit um, soft in the heart today um, because of that, and that's okay as well.
rounded people up into our own concentration camps. In fact, what we have done from the original invasion to now is constantly reduce Aboriginal people to a subhuman status. What amazes me is there is not the hatred, because that's beneath our dignity to hate people. Um, we have not got that. We have not got that anger. Early in March, the new Australian of the Year, Adam Goods, wrote passionately about Pilger's film, saying it had moved him to tears and expressing frustration that it was being ignored by the majority of non-Aboriginal people in this country. There's lots to say about um, those two clips, really. I think um, right from the very beginning when Ian and I started working on this um, topic, we wrestled with how much Aboriginal history, Indigenous um, history to try and tell. Um, we didn't know, you know, we didn't know whether we need to tell any or what we should tell and it wasn't really our place to tell it and this was a story about Adam but we also needed to give some context and it was a real, it, it, was, a, it was a real struggle for us especially as we really wanted all of the archive to come from within that time period. Mm. So I guess there was a moment when we read Adam's article when we realised that he had been to a screening of Utopia during the time period that we wanted and we went, oh my God, maybe that's our way of being able to take a, a small piece of, um, of Aboriginal history and use that in the film. And then careful negotiations with um, John Pilger's company allowed us to have access to the whole film if we wanted it. We wanted it to be set in Redfern, and then this is great when you've got a great researcher, you go off and go, you know, is anybody, you know, when was the last? Anybody ever filmed a, a premiere of something at the block? And it turned out to be Rachel Perkins' mm. film. It was actually Redfern now. Yeah, it was. It was Redfern now had an open. You know, it was their opening screening at the block, so we were able to use that night crowd. It's what you sometimes have to do in docos. You were able to use that night crowd and put our film um, on the screen, and then. The other thing, which at one point you hear Ian's voice um, over some of the the newspaper headline that Adam wrote after having seen Utopia and was so deeply affected by it, and we had considered whether we could maybe ask Adam if we could do his voice over the newspaper, and then again we just realised you, you didn't need his voice and it would not have been true to our story, which was just to use archive. So after what you've seen and you realise that Adam was in attendance at the screening, you just read the words that he wrote. But it was a very important scene um, because that was when certain elements of the media really started turning against Adam. And this was um, a few weeks into his tenure as Australian of the Year and and we could see that that the tone was, was... turning very, very quickly. Um, that was when the first directly negative headline came out was once Adam had been made Australian of the Year. So that's why they sort of smash in just after that speech which he gave on the morning after the day that he was made Australian of the Year. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. We showed the rough cut to... Actually, we kept it very close. We showed it to other people at Shark Island and to Mark Monroe, who is one of the guys that we worked with from the States, and he said... There was definitely a point in the edit when he said, it's just a barrage. There were all these voices, just you know, people yelling. Um, and he just said, it's a barrage. We need to sort of, we need to give people space. And so one clip we had prepared for today was, it was about three minutes in the 75 minutes of the film of, um, 
of wide of aerial shots because there was a moment when we really wanted to as if people hadn't already worked this out we wanted to convey that what we were showing was what Australians had watched in their living rooms or heard on the radio so we just had about six shots of aerials over Sydney or nighttime shots of a Melbourne skyline or the stadiums or, or the stadium which or just allowed you to step Bronte back Beach from the and, babble yeah. yes yeah. and it's we hopefully hopefully it sort of subconsciously made it more cinematic too. Yeah, yeah. And that people were seeing this story unfold and yep. um, little things like that I think were worthwhile and placing Melbourne and Sydney yes. and yeah, and uh, yeah the grounds which would have been such an obvious thing after the event but it, it suddenly just gave it so much more air. And they were like the arena, yeah. both the MCG and the SCG um, and whatever the stadium is called in Western Australia, I can't remember, they were like the arena where a lot of this stuff went down, so it was really good to be able to get above them and see them as an arena. The other thing we wanted to do with this was just get a sense that, you know, it was such an Australia-wide thing, so we had an overhead shot of just huge traffic jam going into town listening to morning radio, the the morning in which Eddie Maguire Mm. said the, the King Kong... Yep. piece and just yep. think wow this is actually affecting yep. so many people and that was sort of a, a way of giving a sense of the the city that nation was listening the furor of the weekends well it was indigenous rounds and a man who's proud of his Aboriginal heritage demonstrated that for all the football world to see. And instead of being a celebration, it became a bitterly divisive issue. Good's war cry was inspired by the under-16 flying boomerangs Indigenous side who have been performing it at matches since 2006, much like the Kiwi Haka. Good says it's no different to celebrations in other codes. The war cry attracted plenty of criticism. Eddie Maguire was upset that he wasn't told beforehand. Had we known before the game that Adam or the Indigenous players were planning to do some sort of war cry, we could have been able to educate and understand the situation. So like everything in life, Carl, it comes down to communication. Eddie's right. There should have been more communication. I mean, sure, it was the AFL's Indigenous round and an Indigenous player with an Indigenous mouthguard wearing an Indigenous jersey scored with an Indigenous ball. But you really do need to warn people when shit's about to get all Indigenous. (laughs) Discussions continued on Sunday's bowl report. Is anybody realistically suggesting that he, he was going to, what, jump the fence and go on a murderous rampage? It was clearly a display of pride. That's all it was. Look, I don't think this helps the reconciliation movement. And if you have a look at Twitter, you have a look at social media generally, I don't know this was a smart move. And well, I'm sorry, reconciliation does not mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean black I people around the country... It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean black people around the country surrendering their culture, lying down and, and ignoring their culture for the culture. sake of white people. It's me think, saying a, to you, mate... What a ridiculous suggestion. It's me saying to you... <laughs> so many varied opinions on this. Interesting. It doesn't actually feel very... It doesn't feel at all funny watching... Listen, I cop a lot of abuse with uh, the positions I take. You'll look at the ABC Twitter feed after this. You'll see plenty of abuse. You've got to get over some of this stuff. But the question everyone's asking about the booing is the same question they asked about your favourite character in Friends. Is it racial? (laughs) 
to tell us why it's not racial, release the middle-aged white men. I don't believe that this is a racial problem, and I think it's such an easy thing for people to say that it is. It doesn't matter what colour skin Adam Goods has, this is not racially motivated. There's still a great level of resentment for what he did here at the MCG a couple of years ago when he called out that 13-year-old girl. For racially abusing him, yeah, yeah, that's racial. Uh, Alan Jones. They're booing Adam Goods because they don't like him and they don't like his behaviour. They don't like the spear throwing and the running in and doing a war dance. That's racial. <laughs> uh, Steve Price. Yeah, I think nobody's booing is racially motivated. No. Why? Why do you I, think I, do, I, I think people are booing him because uh, he has decided, and this is his right, uh, to parade his indigenous credentials strongly. <laughs> That's specifically racial. <laughs> Alan Jones, do you want to have another go? Does Adam Goods ever look into the mirror and ask himself why? Uh, yeah, Alan, I reckon he looks in the mirror and he knows exactly why.
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.